today's program is a nice lead into the Vegas Summit titled Big Bets, the Fundamental Changes That Will Impact Corporate Real Estate. Today's moderator, we are very lucky to have uh, Bill Agnello. Um, I'm going to bring him up. I'm going to just announce him, and then he can uh, go through and announce the rest of our speakers. Bill Agnello has over 30 years of experience in corporate finance and corporate real estate. He is widely recognized as a pioneer and leader in shaping industry vision for the role of corporate real estate in business and infrastructure decisions. Bill retired from Sun Microsystems in 2003 as Senior Vice President of Workplace Resources, Executive Officer, and a member of Sun's Executive Management Group. While at Sun, Bill created and led initiatives addressing global engineering, labor market access, and mobile workforce needs. He was responsible for the delivery of Sun's worldwide real estate facility and IT infrastructure at a time when Sun's workforce grew from 12 to 50,000 and its real estate portfolio grew from 4 to 18 million square feet. Prior to Sun, Bill was president of C.B. Richard Ellison's Madison Advisory Group and vice president of real estate at Baxter Healthcare Corporation, where in 1990, Bill initiated what is regarded as the first outsourcing of a major corporation's real estate activities. So great for people to open up with things that they have a passion about, uh, perhaps being appropriate, but nonetheless provocative, and just thinking of their ideas. I think it's really important, really important. Because I don't think anybody, certainly not myself, nor people on the panel, have the answers, and even solid ideas for what's going to come out the other end of it. And we need to be engaged, so I'm going to expect, if not, Put some parts of me to engage throughout this process, and hopefully I'll do a good job of facilitating that. What we're trying to do is uh, approach this in three ways. Um, I'm going to try to set a context. I'm not an economist. You have one here. Uh, I'm going to try to, to accept, uh, set an economic construct and context. I think is the background for, for our conversation. And when, when I'm done with my opening remarks, we're going over with Kelly, who will. Oh, uh, clear it up to you. <laughs> uh, as the only here. And then we're going to engage um, Richard and Rob in a discussion about so what can we get out of all the broader perspective uh, about what might or might not happen to our industry. And, and along the way, go back to a few cycles ago when quite a bit actually happened to our industry. Uh, in particular, uh, out of the 1990-91 recession, where there were a lot of fundamental things that changed in the nature of our business. And then I'll uh, wrap up with some ideas about things that you might think about uh, for yourself personally and professionally. Uh, I'll share with you the resources that I, I turn to uh, to get you know, uh, my context of things um, and suggest to you if you're, if you're interested in those resources, Give me a business card at the end of the meeting, and I'll have to, I'm happy to share them with them. There are things that uh, try to help, help me keep straight. Okay, so the other thing I have to do is disclosure, and that is because there's no way to have the broad discussion uh, without the perception, at least, of the audience thinking that you're injecting your own political views. Um, again, with politics, I'm an independent. You know, and center right, but nonetheless, an independent voter. Um, I do have, uh, based on my own personal experience and passions, some pretty strong views about what's going on in the economy and what our industry may or may not uh, need right now, and what it might mean for you. Um, 
So let's get started. So again, I, I want to point out that even though I'm alarmed, as I hope most of you are, about what's going on right now, I'm nervous that we get it right. Um, you don't need to have me or any of our panelists you know, create an or boom and boom. I don't believe that. But I do believe that I'll be on the end of this. If we're not vigilant, really engaged, um, and driving our, our representatives to do our uh, policy makers to do the right things, it could be a lot worse than we're otherwise people. So while uh, it's not doing room, it is doing the time to, to really get engaged. And so, number one, uh, you love me of our time. Uh, hopefully, most of you know at least the message that I'm talking about. I doubt that many of you know the profound amount of leverage that was injected to this economy over the last decade. Um, debt to GDP, I'm sorry, um, financial services, the securitization business, listen to this. Uh, in 1983, financial services industry represented roughly 16% of all corporate profits in the U.S. economy. And all of a sudden, it was 35%. In 1983, it was 5% of market capitalization of all U.S. Uh, market capitalization. And all of a sudden, it got to 18%. As far as I know, and Dennis, when he goes into the financial services business, they not sit well, but they don't make anything. Right? Their, their job is, you know, remember your economics going on, land, labor, and capital? Their job was to finance, provide healthy financing so the base economy could grow and sustain itself, not become the economy. I won't share you with all the specific numbers, but if you would be shocked, I didn't do it if you wanted, at how fast, year over year, the financial services industry was growing relative to GDP growth. Five, six, seven, eight times faster than GDP. As a matter of fact, it reminded me of the dot-com era when I was at Sun. A similar thing happened during the 90s with IT stuff. Um, in, in 1980, IT spend as a percentage of total capital equipment spending in the United States. Now that's a big number. Plant equipment, and all kinds of equipment. Um, from 1980 to 2000, it rolled from 15% of total capital equipment to 48% of all capital equipment. Uh, being purchased in IT. Now, you and I hopefully understand that along with education and some other things, IT investments is almost always a precursor to productivity gains. Right? Companies are investing in it. But for 10 years, and going to three times the, uh, the, the contribution to GDP, probably not. Deliver the similar bubble mirror uh, image in some ways with what happened to financial services that they had in the 1990s with IT. We all know what happened, right? Uh, with the IT cost. So, I think if you look around, so deleveraging, the consumer's deleveraging, the government's leveraging up now, but we know that that won't last. They're going to have to deleverage, right? The government's going from the private sector to the government sector. Um, but there's a huge amount of deleverage going on. We all understood the, uh, that, um, you know, the amount of wealth lost in 401ks and home equity. Talking about, I think, uh, 
which are thirteen trillion dollars worth of home equity um, so our asset guys are focused. Let's take commercial real estate. In commercial real estate, this is this is really uh, an interesting number. Since the peak of 2007, 40% decline in commercial real estate values. Uh, there is there has been 1.3 trillion dollars of deposit equity in the value of commercial owners and investors lost. One point three trillion. In the next three years, three to five years roughly, most of the current um, leveraging commercial real estate is coming up for refinancing. And they're going to have to be refinanced not at the values of the loan, but at values perhaps, see what the market looks like over a period of time, perhaps 40% less than the loan was worth. Um, between 2000 and 2007, 70% all commercial real estate trading hands in the United States. And this is another way I think about it. Commercial real estate is a factor of production, right? That's its core function in our economy, not as a fungible, tradable asset. Actually, what happens to the notion of real property assets? We can take that was easily moved around and led to this uh, huge, huge write-down and restructuring, potentially uh, government um, bailouts of commercial real estate industry. Let's see. Um, to give you an idea, uh, McGuire, the developer McGuire in the California area, um, recently uh, wrote off defaulted on 4.2 million square feet of commercial properties. 4.2 million. 20% of their entire portfolio. Um, cap rates, and this is those, again where this coming up in uh, the refinance. 40% decline in value, cap rates set the paper around 6%, now it's 9%. So think about all the next few years as an occupant for the users that are here. What will the capital markets look like in terms of financing occupancy? At a time when our enterprises need more scalability, choice, and flexibility, the capital markets are likely to consolidate. REITs are likely to become a larger and larger order as individual investors default and surrender to the largest through consolidation. And so as a user, what does that mean for you in terms of delivering infrastructure to run your enterprises? And we'll talk about that some more. Um, okay, a few other things before I turn it over to uh, McKellar. Jobs. And this is, this is another big one, right? So we've lost 7 million jobs so far in this recession. Um, official unemployment. Uh, unofficially, you've seen the number of the underemployed, which is discouraged workers and people uh, not voluntarily working with high time, is roughly another 8 million. So 15 million people got out directly affected. And what's not often talked about is that we need to be producing 100,000 jobs a month just to keep up with population growth. 
So in the next five years, we're going to need to generate around 25 million jobs just to get out of the hole, let alone just like growth. So the question is, what industries, what global economic activity, from where is going to create those jobs? And as I get to my panel, my, my proposition is that it's conceivable, again, if, if you believe it, 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 but if it is, and question, what does it mean for you, for your enterprises, and how do you reposition yourself to win? Really, that's what this discussion is all about. Um, but it's conceivable that what has, in terms of the Fed's targets, that um, a structural employment rate, uh, or the historic economic activity, is at about 5% unemployment rate, that kind of like a normal number, that number could be going to start to higher. What does that mean? to us and, and to our enterprises and their economic activity. So I'm not going to go any further in the economic discussion because I really want to engage, uh, engage the tell analysts, I want you to engage with. But there are other things too, like keep in mind, consumers, consumer debt, all right? We're working off, a lot of people extended themselves, uh, they're working off uh, consumer debt. They've lost asset values in 401ks and in their real estate. They're changing their attitudes towards savings. Like right, this is saving this. So all of that happening at a time when we need to generate 25 million jobs over the next five years. Right? It's a, it's, it's a really good challenge. So for those reasons, I believe we are facing fundamental and structural change that we need to embrace, need to understand. So how the other is we have a more stable, healthy, growing economy that's uh, more rational, a lot less leverage, and where growth is more sustainable, and we'll talk about maybe how we do that. So let, let, let me introduce the panel. Okay. Mm -hmm. nope. <laughs> <laughs> uh, first, I'd like to introduce uh, Michele Gambero. Uh, Michele Gambero is a senior research consultant and the chief economist in the research group at Infantin Associates. A registered investment advisor and whole known subsidiary of Morning Star. He contributes to his associates' asset allocation and investment processes and writes the firm's investment strategy and market commentaries. Then, Merrick joined Morning Star in 2000 as a senior quantitative analyst was responsible for developing and testing mathematical and statistical models for Morning Star's investment advice methodology. Yes, okay, so you know I'm an economist and I'm not here. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, actually, here's, here's really funny about it. That is going to work. That's what we're going to have to have some provocative conversation. He's very excited, which is good. He, uh, he said, no problem, economists, we're not known for the interpersonal skills. <laughs> okay, and, and so, um, I won't say anymore. So, <laughs> so, so then we have Rob Gallagher. Tell all about it. Hi, Rob. Rob actually flew from Boston, uh, and he's with the Fidelity Real Estate Company, which is you know, a very large real estate uh, activity. He's got a very interesting background. I'll call you the guy I won't read it off. So what I'm interested, interested in his background is uh, he came out and didn't come out of real estate. He did a lot of interesting things at Fidelity, including uh, inventing for the first time the processes that go workforce planning for Fidelity. They didn't have it before they got there. 
Uh, and he's headed for, as I'll go down this current assignment, to be responsible for basically all supplier relationships and procurement from alliances and contracts for everything that the only local company does. Um, got a good educational background. <laughs> uh, Richard McWayne, I know Richard, that's just an interesting story uh, going back to uh, 1991 when outsourcing, as we understand today, most people would agree with this guy to start. Richard was then with IBM. And I was with CD uh, when we were trying to create our first corporate services business. IBM uh, was the third in a series of three contracts, starting with Baxter Healthcare, followed by Kraft, and then IBM, with, uh, to set up formalized alliances for multi-markets and multi-services. He was my customer back then. So uh, but today, Richard is uh, responsible for corporate solution design and approaches for his own plan itself. And uh, he's done a lot of other things, I'm sure, when you get into the Let's explain how he did some of those things. But he's responsible, for example, in helping JRL uh, kick off his alternative workplace planning uh, and consulting group, which is extremely um, good. Uh, he's done with IBM, he's with Drupal, uh, and with the policy structure. So, like a lot of us these days, he's been on both sides of the time. So, with that, I'd like to go to the Kelly right now and, and have him spend a few minutes. Debating, disagreeing, qualifying, whatever it is I just have to say about this thing. <laughs> See, it's, it's a, a moment of change, as we have seen in the past. Uh, I was talking earlier with one of you, and we were discussing the fact that, that in the around 1905, the US, just like Argentina at the time, were two emerging countries back in the time. Uh, where most of the population was active in agriculture. And uh, they had more or less the same uh, per capita income. However, things have changed. And Argentina remains an emerging country, especially a frontier market, according to modern standards of the international. It's not even emerging. And uh, uh, has remained mostly an agrarian. Uh, Society, for lack of a better word, where the U.S. has changed the product. Because once the U.S. went into manufacturing, and then out of manufacturing and service. So that the uh, last uh, census data that I saw was that 0.7% of the population is active in agriculture nowadays in the United States. Seven people out of a thousand are active in You've seen the change here in Chicago that was, uh, to some extent, the stockyards, the uh, manufacturing, the other clusters, and has changed into a city of uh, services, financial services, and right now uh, a big place of uh, employment for. Uh, uh, I, I read the book to match with this. Okay. So, uh, <laughs> let's go back to Florida things. Uh, it's difficult to, to see where this change is But we know that people are saying more because they have realized that it's really difficult to live beyond the means like it's been in the recent, right? Uh, or, or and uh, Latin America has a 
because uh, I pay every month and so they hate me. But uh, a lot of other people instead uh, have seen their, uh, their maths being uh, lower and uh, their monthly minimum payment being increased and they don't know what to do and they feel like they can save more. And it's interesting how people respond to incentives. When gasoline was four bucks a gallon, which made all of my friends that told me to laugh because it's been seven or eight bucks a gallon for a million years and so
new machinery would take jobs away from factory workers. So we are talking about outsourcing, we are talking about technological changes. 200 years ago, it was already an old story. Somebody had already written about it. Change will happen to, to continue. And to be better placed, for the change, it's better to have a flexible position. The flexible position implies not having too much debt, because if things go sour, the flexible position must have, in general, is worth all. Having a lot of human capital, and having a lot also of uh, so for lack of better word is an open mind that has been has made a difference in the US. That's why the US is different from the But that has to continue because to put a person that I hate to quote and I will recognize. Uh, he stops, he said, he was saying for peace a little battle in his he was saying, if he stops, he's lost. And uh, even you, it tells you that you have to have an open mind. Because from even the, one of the biggest leaders of the 20th century, you get a, a bit of uh, a, bit, a bit suggestion. And criminal, of course. Uh, but uh, he said that you cannot stop. Yes, okay, so the US is better off than a lot of other countries. Doesn't mean that we can continue and allowing, for example, schools to be more and more expensive, to, uh, to have a lot of uh, health care to be more and more expensive, and, and this sort of thing. So I think uh, this, this is from the economic point of view. From the investment point of view, also from the state point of view, rates have changed a lot. In 92, they had a legal change, and so they changed the way they, they became for investment. But they have changed also recently. When you see a large number of rich that are not no longer paying dividends in cash, but they are paying to share. So this and the great volatility that we have seen with the risk has changed uh, the view that many investors, particularly institutional investors, have about real estate and particularly about risk investment. And so I don't think that this will make rich more popular. And this is something that has to be taken into account together with the open building. I think that there might be less money going towards real estate, including the investment fund. And that is another thing that, in terms of change, gives me. Yeah, you know, mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, so, a couple of questions. First of all, do you Probably, but uh, again, people respond to incentives and they adapt. So uh, there are changes in technology. Now, remember when, when Clinton was saying that uh, in '92, uh, when they had this big summit before the beginning of the, of the presidency, nobody had to up the internet. So there are things that that change uh, and, and we don't know because we are not to worry about the party. It, it's possible that for some time that will happen. For some time. Yeah, it's not just, it, it's, it's very difficult to think that it will continue forever. Yeah. Um, of course, you know, uh, part of this discussion, some of education, no doubt. Um, you know, a long time ago, just in the natural revolution, just competitiveness. Uh, you know, official or unofficial, or just by the nature of things, um, our big debt. Uh, 
uh, the, the economy is that we are going to continue to move up the value chain in terms of global economic activity. And that might be a lot of the consternation in the manufacturing sector, you know, recently uh, the vacuum of movement of things offshore into places like India, etc. But what we didn't do is understand that when we made that fact to move up the value chain was to um, pay attention to the types of products and services that are at the top of that value chain and how well prepared our workforce was to do that work, to invent it and to do that work. So let me give you, and let me tell you why there's a big gap between that and that and how ready our workforce is to invent new industries that will create 25 million jobs and get the economy in. And let me give you some statistics. For example, the high school dropout rate in the United States Uh, 
So it is, uh, there was no years of growth from the recovery, there was no way to go from the recovery. I'm talking about things that move unsustainably, as you were mentioning, unsustainable growth of financial services, there was an unsustainable growth in uh, the cost of healthcare. So that, that was one thing that I guess I wanted to talk that salaries didn't grow because uh, uh, the cost of labor was growing due to healthcare. And again, just to perform uh, a more data point, obviously the unemployment picture. Um, in, the, in the session of the 80s, for every 100 jobs that was lost, there were about 80 new ones created. Now, so there are some companies that still put that down, while the that are growing, and they added people. So originally, it was up to 80 to 100. In the session uh, of the 90s, that had dropped to 7. In the session of the early 2000s, that had dropped to 6. We don't know what that number is yet for this recession. So I'll say that adds up to what has to be accepted by people as something fundamental changing in the unemployment picture. Whether you accept um, a long-term overall unemployment rates rising, rising to 70 years, well, of course, debatable. But I don't think what is debatable is that something fundamental is going on. You probably won't know uh, some period in the future will be able to look back and say, aha, that's what it was. Okay, so, uh, microphones. Okay. Questions uh, from anybody that had or comments about the economy? Mine, you must have a second. Okay, so I heard you say it's pretty much that I heard the economy. Yeah, yeah, Yes, you did. It was Greg, and I, 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 I picked up on that contrast too. Matter of fact, in getting ready for this discussion, I called an analyst at Morgan Stanley that follows the real estate business, capital markets, insurance providers, etc. Their person, and he says most analysts that he tracks to, where he predicted a strengthening of rates. Why do you think that's not the case? There might be strengthening of rates because of consolidation, and therefore, for a sell-side analyst, consolidation means measures, and means that top prices will go up, and so they might be excited because of that. However, I'm not saying that they're wrong. I'm just saying that they're looking at a horizon that is shorter than the rest of the country. There is another perspective relative to REITs and why you're seeing REITs uh, take on greater degrees of capitalization and have higher performance. One of them has to do with the way they report, which is probably not as material to this discussion. The other is there's this perception that when you see a dramatic change in the marketplace, like we're all experiencing right now, that there is, in fact, a real opportunity. And one of the ways to capitalize on that opportunity as a value investor and diversify some risk around that investment is through the Greek mechanism. And, and while a lot of the markets around the world are starting to show signs of uh, early signs of, of, of a return to something like uh, a normal operating capital markets environment, the U.S. is not. But what you are starting to see even in this market is the value of investment, whether it's you know, uh, limited leverage offshore, people who look at opportunities for prime 
uh, real estate buys at a fraction of replacement cost. Um, and, and that's typically what you start to see re-entering the market. Um, and the REIT, getting back to the REIT point, is a way for others to kind of invest in that value dynamic as well. Doesn't it have to do with how much space is needed? It, it turns out no. 
What had to do was, was, was a flood of passion in the world to solve wealth funds and securitization, et cetera, that threw so much money after asset allocation that real estate just started demanding uh, 500 bucks a square foot. It had nothing to do with underlying fundamentals of the people using occupying space. I remember a man, Jerry Dean, who was here, Jerry Benjamin, three of them. I'll step out the name of Jerry was president of CBU when I was running it. And uh, when I helped him start the book of all the corporate services people, and he was the director of corporate services. Um, and uh, he said, well, so, so what's wrong with the service provider and, and, and product providing buildings industry? I said, you know, probably we need them. They do get down to the drive capital to provide houses or enterprises, et cetera. But I, I looked behind him on this floor of projects with dozens of uh, industry periodicals, right? Developers, investors, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. I said, well, I'm going to play a game. And I said, I'll be back to you by about 2 o'clock this afternoon. I grabbed just a handful of the most well-known of the publications. And I come through every page. And I went back in, I put on the desk and said, so what is this? I said, well, here is, quote, the industry talking to itself. There wasn't a single article, a picture, a comment about an end user in any of you go to ULI, they're all popping in time. Right? It's not to say they don't worry about it. It's going to be a lot of Certainly, you can consider about it in your behavior and consumption, et cetera. But what happened was the industry, in so many ways, certainly the securitization of the economy, started to see itself second in a lot of ways. The conversation was more and more separate from the underlying economy because so much cash was chasing. Right, and so that was a bubble. Yeah, you can see it coming. Prices per square foot. The nature of the conversations that were going on among those who are providing product and service. You know, and so wherever you are now, you see if you're seeing those gaps, you need to ask, observe them, understand them, and figure out what we need to do to change them to make them more right. And how can you personally uh, profit and enterprise grow given that? Okay. So we're going to move on to synthesize that. Let me ask you any more questions, burning questions, comments about the economy. Okay, so let's uh, move to service providers. You know, uh, one of the things that we agreed to do was to try to make this more real for our industry and for us to participate in the industry. And the most recent uh, experience I had was during the 1991 when um, uh, I was hired. By Gary and CB from Slides Corporate Services Business. And uh, I wish Gary were here to hear this because he thought he was It's kind of interesting because ultimately, I left there three years later, uh, the CB Corporate Services Business, then known as the CB Management Advisory Group, was really quite successful. And I think a lot of people, I think we can do agree. Was kind of betting that CB finally was going to get the corporate services thing right. And could darn well dominate it given its platform and its scale. Turns out, you know, they didn't for a long time. And so they ended up not betting on corporate services really, but allowing it to kind of language that the brokers called it for many, many, many years. Until I think it was, what, those cases when you bought Carol? So there's a big bet, right? They're not trying to get the service for 
event then was that corporate services wasn't that big of a deal at CB. That uh, transactions and brokerages were still the most important thing for that company. Uh, Fifteen years later, rather than having grown it organically when they had it, they paid two billion dollars to buy corporate you know, And what I would articulate is the final acknowledgement that they needed to be in that business. They had not gone in organically. They need to buy a plug-and-play company. So, what I'm suggesting to you is that the enterprises that you work for, particularly the service industry, is being, is being confronted with similar uh, forces that play. Smaller economy, fewer players, higher levels of consolidation. I guarantee you, your owners, your boards, are thinking about mergers, acquisitions, the whole range of things, trying to find a bet, make their big bets. You may not know they're thinking about these things, but I'm getting to you, they are. So, Richard and Rob, I'd like, let's talk about the service industry. You know, it, it's kind of interesting. These times tend to flush out what I would call natural tensions in, 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 in our industry. There are long standing tensions between customers and suppliers in our business, some of which haven't changed very much over the time. Was quality of service, true uh, consistency across the world or across the country, whether it's pricing, financial relationship. So, when you talk about where you two people think, you stand in terms of the relationship between service providers and the end users, and what you think are the needed changes, is not a predictive change of the end users. Sure. Um, and you're Full disclosure, uh, Richard is uh, leadership on our account, uh, the failure account. They work on it together. So we work like this together. So everything Rob said, I mean, we tend to agree with him. I think, Bill, to your point, I, I think a lot of the fundamental tensions uh, remain. Uh, from our perspective, it's, it's a people business. What we are looking for, and what most introducers are looking for, is the best quality people that get on the accounts, and they want consistency in those people. And that's what really drives good service for our business units. Uh, the platform that the company brings is important, and I think some of the larger uh, scale players have, have really stepped up and are improving their, their platform and their, their ability to uh, you know, pull a lot of information together in a portfolio. But it really is about uh, are you going to be able to get and maintain and retain the best people on your account? Uh, I don't think that's changing in much over years. Uh, as far as consistency, that also continues to be a challenge. Uh, globally, uh, a lot of these companies, or I should say a lot, a few of these big ones, do have a global presence now, which is great. Um, but in most cases, their financial structure and the way in which their P&Ls work it, it, it isn't always easy to use your leverage when you're in another market around the world, even though it's the same firm. Uh, partly on our side, too, we're not always that big scale in some of these other places. Uh, so that can be the uh, issue. Well, I think, um, you know, this is always an interesting question because um, of the, over the course of my, my career and the different firms that I work for, I think. I think a lot of times when you think about the real estate services industry, people tend to aggregate it into uh, 
uh, firms besides McDonald's on the salary CBRE, which uh, was sit in an extreme end of a largely disaggregated business. And there is still a tremendous amount of real estate professional services, whether it's in the design, construction, transaction arena, that is still performed on, uh, on a very local basis with firms that, or individuals that are firms that are smaller or individuals. As you go to the end, though, if we talk about the other end of the spectrum, the large-scale firms, um, with clients changing their ask around the level of lead integration that they're demanding from firms, the level of expert systems that they're expecting the firm to bring, the, the degree of coordination around the world, and as they themselves, it was interesting, you know, for a long time, uh, people would say, well, uh, we really need a firm to be able to deliver across the world in a very integrated way, uh, with consistent standards, and all the things that, you know, kind of the whole promise of the global enterprise. When they themselves as customers weren't at all organized like that, it was very much a regionally dominated body. Uh, with very different uh, demands in terms of the way the buyer, the customer, wanted the, the service provider to, uh, to respond. But having said that, increasingly you are seeing corporates start to line themselves up uh, in terms of their internal organization, systems, metrics, and so forth, and ask for uh, a, a global provider. And um, it is a challenge. I mean, it's clearly a challenge. Even if you're, you know, 40,000 employees around the world, having the capability everywhere, or in fact the extended network to be able to deliver consistently everywhere, is frankly uh, a, a, a challenge. Um, and being provocative, since that's what Bill wanted us to be, I think, you know, given the fact that there are two firms that kind of sit at that end of the spectrum I've just been talking about, I think there's a real market demand for a third firm join those two at that end. Wow. And uh, so that's really interesting because I don't know the source of those. I didn't know you can use the of that And I work as big as JLL and CBR, CBR. Again, you said it's an aggregate. It's a very large, fragmented industry. Um, as good and as reputable as those enterprises are, neither one of them are themselves together have enough market power to set the standards for price, quality, and service. That's how we can the fragment of the overall industry is. And Morgan Stanley, for example, they're looking at as he gives the preach. A further consolidation of the services provider side, the JLL and CBRE, gained market share. What he wasn't asking was, what he hadn't thought about it, he knew anything since he was business and could turn it upside down. And uh, the example I like to use most of the possibility uh, is IBM. Who's to say IBM Global Services, which does a lot of interesting outsourcing things, couldn't turn its size in this industry? Why not? If they see consolidation as needed and profit opportunity to expand their outsourcing and services offerings, who's to say that the consolidation and the third or or the fifth competitor would come from anybody who needs to know right now. My prediction is that you may see some of that operation. Um, let's get back to some specifics because 
I'm still befuddled, if not surprised by this notion that, especially for those of you who need multi-market global services, that your enterprise platform of CB and GLL matter. That is, you can be plugged and play for consistency of quality and service as well across, across global service activities or you can. Versus the, the importance that Bob mentioned is it comes down to the individual online account. You know, and I see a contradiction there. Is either the differentiation of the enterprise itself matters or it doesn't, or there's some Fortunately, like that, people are still struggling. Well, maybe I'd like to be a little clearer. I think there's sort of a, uh, uh, a, le a level that the company has to be determined of if they want to be a horrible player. We see JLL, you know, are there to give capability? And I think we do need more. I think there are firms out there that are trying to either go from the broker side and get back towards facility management or they're trying to come in the other direction and offer full services. So, Clearly, that capability of the platform is sort of a, you've got to have that just to be in the game. And then it becomes much more of a people question for the, uh, the, the end user that's selected. And I would say from our perspective, I think we've seen this in the way now, we've built our own internal organization, but we look for service providers, we're looking for that those individuals in the leadership position that have a broader business understanding. That's another thing that can be lacking in time. We really want uh, the leaders on our account to really get in and understand our business with us. Uh, we may not always give them all the opportunities we should, but that's, that's the direction we want to move to. Because I think that broad knowledge of business is where we have to do. Uh, we have some end users in the room uh, express their happiness, their dissatisfaction, their frustrations with the, the, the service industry. Anybody have anyone to stand up? Yeah. Really. Well, you know, it's interesting because I know that JLL and CBRE have, for many years, tried to figure out how to take the platform capabilities and bring it down from large global enterprise customers to middle markets, where they receive uh, those less competition rates. So some of the regional players in whatever segment you want to pick, like actually facility management, transaction management, et cetera, um, are they able to they kind of stay below the radar screen, so to speak, of, of the, the customer that a, a CDRE or a DLL would go to? And so what do you guys think about that? Do you think the very higher prospect of being a new cycle, that the big guys finally find their way into middle markets? Two, two points. Um, first of all, relative to what we were just talking about, whether it is the platform or the individual, it's definitely the end. Because uh, a platform, oftentimes, particularly in the, the brokerage transaction business, it's been about managing and controlling and developing a relationship. Um, that's an important element of our business, and the service business that will continue to be an important element, and we should never dismiss that. But it's getting to the end, uh, which is what we discussed. I think, in terms of the point of expanding into the middle market, that, that is absolutely a mission critical strategy for uh, a, a firm like ours. And has been kind of, if you watch, for example, uh, the acquisitions that we've made uh, over the last uh, decade or so, um, startup companies, falling in slide, and so forth and so on. 
These are deliberate attempts to kill our capability on the ground in regions to be able to be a provider. We believe that the middle market is underserved with some of the tools and technology and some of the, the things that we have initially built for a lot of its customers. Um, and we have to get good at, uh, at, at figuring that out and as a channel, and you know, that's, that's a huge part of our growth. I think one of the things we run into, this happened to me this week, so it's very fresh. Uh, there was somebody, uh, I won't mention the company's name, because I'm not sure they would appreciate it, but many years ago, I did some work with them around, uh, a Fortune 50 company, around uh, thinking about reorganizing the internal corporate department. And I developed good working relationships with the head of real estate and some of the senior executives at companies, most of that company. Um, I learned that they were coming to the street with an RFP to, uh, to outsource uh, real estate services. And um, I'll tell a little bit of the story. It's a little bit uh, off color on JLL. One of the things about big companies, we could get an RFI and you might not know it. You know, it goes somewhere within the enterprise and it doesn't necessarily go to the right place. And so I call up my contact at this corporate and say, you know, it's a little bit uh, uh, kind of hat in hand saying, we could have received the RFI and, and not been aware. And I do really apologize if that's the case and, and just wanted to make sure that we were connected. And the response from this individual I had a great working relationship with over the years said, well, we didn't send it to your security. And I said, why? And he said, matter of fact, because we think we can leverage the hell out of a small provider and, and grind them in a different way than we could grind you. Now, you know, I'm not sure that's the most enlightening CRE response I've ever heard, um, but that was nonetheless the, the thinking, is that, you know, uh, this balance of power that sometimes exists between the CRE and the provider um, does play itself out. What's the, what's the answer? What's the lesson, excuse me, in, in the program like ours? We have to be able to channel and, and provide a meaningful way of supporting lots of different customers at lots of different scales uh, in order for our customers. Okay, so um, it's interesting to whether it happens in the service provider industry or in companies that you work for. Um, at times like this, uh, here in the recession, after the recession is over, one out of, and this is the economist, uh, one out of every three market leaders in their respective industries disappear. Companies go away. I happen to have worked for one of them some of Think about it. Some microsystems were able to get a $4 billion market share company. We got the roughly $230 billion in Microsoft. From $4 billion in revenue to $20 billion in revenue in a span of about six years, all of this happened. They made long bets in, in starting the late 90s and early 2000s around being a pure product play, being focused on its. Uh, computer systems and software. Um, and IBM and HP were going vertical of uh, having a market serve enterprise, uh, wrapping on consulting, outsourcing, a whole range of other things. So our enterprise IT organizations in Seattle turned out is what they really wanted. Sun did not see the modernization of service coming. 
And here we have this unbelievable enterprise being acquired by Orwell. And after all of that. And so what I want you to think about is, you know, like I said earlier, your company's just industry, there's someone in the back room somewhere thinking about what the best way to be made. And if you read any of uh, gurus uh, today, will tell you that incrementalism, an incremental approach to what he's uh, experiencing right now, um, likely won't keep you around. And that there are going to be big winners and big losers out of this type of crisis in ways we haven't seen it before. Because more and more of them are participants are going to have to make the true bets. And so again, look at yourself, look at the companies you're working for, look at the industries you're working in. Look at, you know, if your industries are tied to consumer spending with what you just heard about consumer spending, what does that really mean? What are the right, right, right outcomes of some of that? Um, let's talk about, I want to wrap up here in, in a few minutes, uh, but I, I want to get this sort of enough time and get into it. You know, I think, the thing to be in fitness is uh, uh, thinking that's going on right now. More market power through consolidation in capital markets, namely through lease, consolidation in service providers, right, given by economic realities. Usually consolidation in market power means less flexibility, less choice, and more cost being used. What happens? Well, I would also say that it's not even business coming out of this hope coming out of this uh, downturn is looking for more than it has in the past. Uh, from a real estate perspective, uh, we have about 40,000 employees. Uh, we've been a very high growth company over the years. We've always seen to be adding jobs, adding jobs. Uh, and we've taken quite a hit in the last uh, 12 months, like many companies. Uh, it's caused our business leaders to really look at real estate differently in the past. I mean, it was, to some extent, it was, um, you know, just they knew what they wanted, they knew where they wanted to be, they didn't want to know more details than that. We now have our business units that are much more focused on, for the first time, thank God, on alternative work arrangements, which we are waiting on on. They're looking at utilization space more than they ever had before. They're asking a lot more questions about location than they ever did before. And I don't think that's going to change. So I think that's going to create even more of a, of a disconnect with the market than we've had traditionally. And I, I agree with that. I'm very proud of the market because only a handful of you were here three years ago when we had this discussion. And the pretty rich data out there right now that suggests, if not almost proved, that at any given time, especially office properties in the United States, are in need to define. Uh, at any given time, uh, that space is 40% of it's not used. Um, is it possible with all of these constraints on our industries, capital market constraints, focused on cost structure, is it possible that that level of vacancy, not officially reporting vacancy, but the actual office vacancy is about 15%. The real number is 40%. You know, and the analogy we used back then was a manufacturing analogy. If any of you were uh, in corporate, uh, let's say you were running a manufacturing uh, division of your company, you go to the board of directors on a quarterly basis and boast that your, your plants were only 40% underutilized, do you think you had a job? So why is it acceptable that in what we call knowledge worker environments, that our plant called those, those facilities, it's okay to have 40% uh, efficiency rates? 
is not open. Right? And so the question is, uh, will there be enough pressure on, on this situation where some of that time is, uh, is just either for that on a real budget or not? Since it seems to be that the capital market cases and service providers are going the wrong direction in the scale of the flexibility, that there is likely to be a, a giant increase in the adaption rate of mobile work practices. Not because people who should not be mobile are being ready to force to be mobile, because they already are. They really are, and global enterprises are in it, in it playing 40% of space unnecessarily. So the, the, the way they don't get control of it is figuring this out of space. That's what they're going to do. And finally, accept the reality of today's workforce as being more mobile. Invest in the right technologies and work practices and management frameworks to make mobile workforce accessible as a way of offloading the inventory. Yeah, capital markets are not going to let them have more scalability and flexibility, which is sure like this what's happening. Mm -hmm. I, I, I think the business units could say are already doing it, and I think they're going to. They're going to realize, I think the final step of giving up that space won't be nearly as painful as it would have been four, five, six, seven years ago. Uh, before we uh, get into some final reflections, questions, anxieties, proposals, ideas? Yes. We've all touched on several things already to this, but it seems to me that the small There's a couple, couple of, uh, I keep my comments now, but a couple of reactions. I think as we see the type of end user changing, which isn't going to be the case across the board, but if you look at who populates their jobs of corporate real estate um, in medium to large companies, over the last decade or two, there's been a sea change in the type of individual that populates their jobs. And that's significant because they ask for different things and approach the world very differently. And I think as, as that continues to evolve, it's going to mean that the medium size and the, the smaller enterprise with a disparate portfolio are going to be looking for some of those same things. So I think that's, uh, that's a dimension that will play itself out. The, the counter to that, though, is entrepreneurialism. Being able to do mass customization is the goal of the large companies like ours. Uh, is there a place for the local entrepreneurs to be able to reach uh, a segment of the market and just nail it? Um, I think that's not just a hope for our industry, but it's a hope for our whole economy. So, um, yes, there is still definitely a role. You can think that in, in the near term, you're going to see the mass aggregation of real estate services across the, the globe. Um, no, I mean, if you look at the total market share by CBRE and Joe Biden and we're proud of it. It's pretty small percentage of the overall market. So, um, yes, there is a role for the entrepreneur who dials in a niche and delivers some value 